into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say here, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your host, Samson Kovach, and we are working through our series here on the Bible. And this has been a really great series. I've had a lot of fun with it. I found it to be very informative, at least from my perspective. I've, um, uh, well... How should I put this? I've taught theology for quite a while, and I've taught bibliology, oh man, at least five or six times before in in 10-week courses. And whenever I go through it, there's always I always find something new. I always find something interesting, like um, some little, you know, thing to kind of latch on to and, and, and to, you know, really... I guess internalize. You know, I, that's what I get to take away from a lot of this. And with this one, because I decided to do it on my own, normally I would teach through something called the Theology Program from Credo House uh, Ministries. And I decided, hey, I'm going to kind of go out on my own here and, you know, put it together myself, you know, using some of their stuff, but also, you know, some of the stuff that I've uh, collected over the years and things I felt that I found, you know, would find interesting and hopefully you found interesting as well. And um, I've just really gotten a lot out of it. And, you know, and I, I just really appreciate that, that, you know, those of you who listen, those of you who, um, you know, subscribe, I, I just really appreciate that because that encouragement is really what keeps me going and in, um, in doing these and doing the theology pit in general. I just I really love talking systematic theology. I, I just love every single thing about it. I love the subtle nuances um, that come with this particular discipline. I, I realize that it's a very heady discipline. It really is. And it's one of the few where you really have to say the exact right thing or um, you're going to get hammered for not articulating something right. Because if you say something just slightly wrong, just slightly wrong, man, people are going to jump all over you and they're going to assume that you are you know, representing a different view that you may not be. And no more is this important than what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of inerrancy, that the Bible is inerrant and what exactly that means. So stay tuned. Okay, so we're going to hit on the doctrine of inerrancy, and maybe we will start into the different interpretive methods, okay? So sort of the way this is going to structure out, the way I have it in my head right now, talk about inerrancy, and then we will talk about the different kinds of interpretive methods. Uh, methods that are out there, the different ways that people interpret scripture. And um, then, you know, then we'll talk about like uh, proper hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation, the way modern, you know, people do it. And, you know, I'll talk about the way that I do it, you know, how I'm uh, interpreting scripture whenever, whenever I'm reading it. But let's start on inerrancy. Now, this question of inerrancy, 
Uh, when, when you use that word, I mean, people, they might throw that word around. They may throw it around pejoratively, okay? And they may say, well, you know, you believe the Bible's infallible just because it says that it's infallible. Or, um, well, if I can find one thing wrong with the Bible, well, then the whole Bible falls apart and it's all just crap. And I mean, in a way, Christians do present the Bible like that, so that that you know that's a possibility. Okay, that if you destroy one part of it, or if you can show that one part of it is wrong, then it's going to fall like a house of cards. Okay, and and there are some Christians out there who their faith has actually been destroyed because of that, because they said, okay, well, I've always been told that this was the inerrant word of God, but. You know, it was demonstrated to me that there are, in fact, errors in it. So, like, what do I, what do I do? I mean, if if this is in error, if the, if there are errors here, perhaps there are errors everywhere within my faith, and maybe I can't really trust, you know, my my own understanding that I've come to when it, when it's come to scripture maybe I can't trust my church I can't trust my parents I you know why would they why would they tell me this kind of stuff and it and that all stems back to well a, cu- a couple different things number one um, uh, biblically idolatry would be the the first thing that people they're worshiping the Bible and not the God of the Bible okay and inerrancy will lend itself to this sort of thing. You see, what's interesting is that from having taught bibliology and from teaching systematic theology, I run into a lot of Christians that have a lot of different ideas about the Bible. And a lot of times, if you get people that are very passionate about their faith, the Bible in Protestantism, okay, and that's mostly what I'm talking about here, they take it very, very seriously as the Word of God to the point where anything that Will, would contradict what they have to say or what they think about it, they immediately deny, um, you know, I guess a priori, prior to examination, because they have such an emotional connection to their methodology that it's the Bible, it's the Word of God, I should be able to understand it, I should be able to interpret it. And if you show me something in there that you know, you're like, well, you know, that might not exactly be right. Or, you know, like, like we did before, um, with going through the, uh, the different variants that, Hey, this particular passage or these passages, they're not supposed to be in your Bible that, that messes with them. And, you know, they'll get on me about that. But the question that we have to ask and what I've brought up in the theology pit before in the past and possibly in, in, in this series, but I know definitely in the uh, salvation series is the question of, you know, uh, not really worded like this, but I'm going to word it like this for this particular talk. If the scriptures are wrong, if they're error, if they, if they have errors in them, okay, can Christianity still be true? And we've answered that. If you've been listening to the Theology Pit, then you know that our faith does not come from the Bible, especially the New Testament. But the New Testament actually comes out of our faith. It comes out of Christianity because our hope lies in the resurrection of Christ, not in the accounts that were written down. 
So a lot of times it said that, you know, the scripture is um, useful for the Christian life, for the church life. But is it possible to live a Christian life, a good Christian life, without the Bible, without the New Testament? Well, yeah, of course, you know, because people did it. You know, it's done. I mean, the New Testament is recording those. I mean, Scripture is very helpful to have, but our faith does not fall apart if we don't have it. So even if it's an error, um, that really doesn't do anything to our our salvation. Now, your personal walk, I mean, that might be something that shakes the foundation of, of your personal walk. But what's interesting is that I've heard people misrepresent the nature of Christ, the hypostatic union. They've misrepresented the Trinity. They've I, I've heard heretical statements in churches. I've heard, you know, all kinds of, of wrongheaded theology in Protestantism, and nobody bats an eye at them. But as soon as you get close to this particular one, this doctrine of inerrancy, this is where people really, I mean, this is the hill that they will fight and die on. And not fight and die for their position, but fight and die for the concept that they've built up. Even if it's even if it's a wrong concept. You know, we're also going to look at the questions of um, you know, can the scriptures error, can they can they you know, have problems with them and still be considered inspired? Um does the Bible contain insist- uh, inconsistencies? I mean, that's that's a valid question. You know, I mean, we, we went through and we looked at, you know, okay, is it reliable? You know, do we have the right words? Do we have the right books? Is it preserved from what we have? But did we really look at any true inconsistencies that may come up? I mean, does... Does the Bible have to be perfect in the realm of modern scientific observation? Does it have to be perfect in its understanding of modern medicine? Does it have to be perfect in its numerical count of things? So, before we go really any further with those... Because those are kind of rhetorical questions that I'm I'm throwing out there, and it, hopefully it's getting your your wheels turning. If you've never really thought about this, I mean, if this is, you know, you're listening to this going, oh boy, I really don't like the direction this podcast is going. This makes me really uncomfortable. Well, it's a theology pit. I said it, you know, from the very first podcast. We're going to talk about things that are going to make us uncomfortable as Christians, and I think that this is something that we have to talk about. This is something that we need to explore. We need to get a handle on. I think we need to express to other people. And if it is something that we're uncomfortable with. We need to say that. Um, I was in a study the other day, a a small study um, before my son's um, uh, youth group that I I help out with. And we always have a small Bible study uh, beforehand. And we were looking at a particular passage. Um, it was in um, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, uh, verse 10. Uh, I think it was like 10, 11, and 12. And then um, there might have been a couple more verses in 18. And then we went and skipped over to 19 to look at it. But in 1810, I remember that 
really stick it in my craw and I went back to it with everybody because I was very uncomfortable with it. And I wanted to let people know I am uncomfortable with this wording. I do not like this wording. And, you know, it was giving the implication that, you know, God is the one who sent a an evil spirit into Saul that was making him behave the way that he was. And I was like, look, I don't, I'm very uncomfortable with that. I'm, it's one thing. And I brought up, I said, it's one thing to say that God will back off, take his hand away. Okay. Um, and allow people to just go their own sinful ways and, and they go into their own destruction. Okay. That's, that's one thing to say that. I mean, we, see that all through the Old Testament. That happens a lot. But the things with like hardening Pharaoh's heart and, um, you know, this particular passage with Saul, I said, this is God taking an active role that is causing this particular sin, you know, that's causing this particular behavior. And I'm uncomfortable with that. And I think if you want to learn and you want to grow as a Christian, whenever you're in these studies and whenever you're doing things like this, you ask the hard questions and you say, I don't like this. This makes me uncomfortable. And, you know, it took me a while of, of saying over and over again, because people were say, well, you know, scripture says that, you know, this like Job, you know, he, or, you know, Satan was wandering to and fro on, on the earth and, and God asked him where he was. And, you know, it was, you know, one of those sort of things. And, and the, the point was brought up that, you know, Satan wasn't allowed to do anything unless God allowed him to give him permission. And I was like, well, that's great, but that's kind of different than what we're talking about here. And you know, this, that's why this makes me a little more uncomfortable. Well, you know, the, I mean, and that, that would be like something if we wanted to go into a Bible study on, you know, first Samuel in the theology pit where we would talk about that. But hopefully, you know, we get through this, this section on Bible interpretation, you'll, you know, be able to go in that yourself and, you know, answer those questions. There are different, um, theologies and different explanations of you know, why that's occurring and what's going on. The particular theology that I have, it makes me very uncomfortable and I'm very willing to say that. But we, I've been talking about inerrancy. Now, there's another word also, and that's infallibility uh, when it comes to the scripture. So I want to define those two things because they are two separate concepts. And even one of the concepts is actually applied to the Pope, which is infallibility. But inerrancy... The, the working definition is that the doctrinal teaching that the scriptures in the autographa, which is the original manuscripts, are true in all they teach and thus without error. Infallibility is the doctrinal teaching sometimes used synonymously with inerrancy that the scriptures cannot fail in matters of faith and practice. So, a lot of times when people are talking about inerrancy, they may be alluding to infallibility. It's a, and that's where you have to listen very, very closely to the wording that they're using. If they know, I don't, I don't want to say it you know, sounds bad, if they know what they're talking about, but if, they are very, if they're familiar with this topic and they're familiar with infallibility um, and, and inerrancy, because some say, well, do you believe the Bible's inerrant? inerrant? And they say, well, yes, absolutely. And, and it, it, it's inerrant in all faith and practice. 
And it's like, okay, you're kind of, you're kind of mixing the two up, but I, but you get what they're saying. You're like, okay, I, I get your gist. I can, I can talk to you, you know, but we need to kind of you know, talk over the, these things just a little bit more. So let me go through the arguments for inerrancy. All right. So let's talk about the positives first here and um, the arguments for inerrancy. And then we'll look at the opposition to it. Okay. And why, why some people don't hold it. So here is the first argument. If the scriptures are in fact theonoustos, which means God breathed and representing the voice of God. Okay. Ipsissima vox. Okay. The voice of God and God is without error, then the scriptures are without error. Okay, so here's how the syllogism goes. And a syllogism is generally a couple premises and a conclusion. So premise number one is this. God is faithful and therefore beyond error. Okay, it's premise number one. If that holds true, then the conclusion will hold true. Premise two. God is the ultimate author of scripture. So if that holds true, that God's the ultimate author of scripture and God is truthful and therefore beyond error, then the conclusion is that scripture is truthful and therefore beyond error, i.e. inerrant. Okay. But it's only if those first two premises are true. Second point. If scripture contains historical and or scientific error, then its entire theological message is placed in jeopardy. Since the theological message of scripture is based upon the historical, who has the ability to judge what is accurate and what is not? Three, inerrancy is inherently tied to absolute authority. Any denial of inerrancy produces a slippery slope in which the one who denies this doctrine is open to deny the authority of Scripture on any matter. Okay? This is what, you know, I would be accused of when I would talk about the woman caught in the act of adultery in, um, in, in the Gospel of John. I think it's at, uh, where did we find that at? John 5 or 6? Well, I can't remember now, but anyways, um, I would say that it's not it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. I think it's at the end of seven into eight, maybe. Yeah, but um, you know, it's not found in the earliest manuscripts, and people would say, "Oh, well, so you can just cherry pick what you want in the Bible." And it's like, well, no, that's not what I'm doing. You know, I'm 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 looking at it, but in their minds, I have just denied the authority of scripture. And this is the argument that the King James only people have. The people who believe that the King James version of the Bible, which is called the authorized version, is the only um, version that is truly the word of God that we must submit to. And the reasoning is because we need to have an established authority that is static. As soon as you start using other translations or taking things out or wording things differently or doing something like that, you, you immediately put this uncertainty in there and you no longer have an authority, but you have something that's subjective to your own interpretation. Okay. So, People who hold to the King's own, King James only view are doing it because they have a very high view of scripture within their theology. And 
they want one you know particular translation to be that modern equivalent of the autographa okay or the autographs um, that they want something that they can always go to and there is no back and forth of well that's not exactly worded correctly or that's what I mean they the King James version of the Bible is a good translation for its time okay it's a very good Bible to read out loud it's 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 poetic in its structure it, it reads very well it flows very well that was its intent um but we have better translations today. So if you were going to hang your hat on one particular translation, why would it be that? Is yeah, problem number one I would have with it. Problem number two is that if you're really that serious about the scriptures, um, why wouldn't you be doing everything you can to get back to the originals? Why wouldn't you be funding ministries that do textual criticism? Why wouldn't you be sponsoring classes that teach Koine Greek and you would be teaching Koine Greek and you, uh, you would have your parishioners uh, learning it and then you know that would be the uh, scripture that you would use and the scripture that you would read from and the only one that you would use and and you know if if it's that important um, I I honestly think that saying the King James version for an English speaking audience for them to say that that has to be the authorized version is extremely lazy. Uh, when it comes to this subject. The fourth point is that the Bible does not contain any errors. Now, the premise is this. The Bible does not contain any errors. The conclusion, the Bible is inerrant. It's only one premise. But again, if the premise holds true, the conclusion holds true. Okay, But if the Bible is shown to have an error, well then this falls apart. And this is the type of inerrancy I think that a lot of Christians hang their hat on. The premise of everything the Bible says is true according to the intention to which it was written. The conclusion is the Bible is true, i.e. inerrant. So, let's say the Bible says something and someone shows, well, that's not quite right, you know, and you're like, well, that wasn't the point of that particular passage. The point of that passage would, would be this. And this is the difference between um, what's known as absissima verba and absissima vox. Absissima verba is that every single word is inspired. Okay? Every single word. Absissima vox is that the voice that comes from it, the meaning, that's what's inspired, okay? It's the voice of God that is inspired, not the actual words themselves, the ink on paper, the, the, the letters on paper. That's not the important thing. That's not what's inerrant. What is inerrant is the meaning that comes out of it. So, think of vox being voice, okay? Epsissima vox, the voice that comes out. Epsissima verba, think of a verb that's written on a piece of paper, okay? That is the word that is written down. Now, there was a... Uh, a committee that got together in a way. Um, we, as 
Protestants. We love our, our committees and we love our councils and we love getting together and arguing about minute things and coming to a compromise that generally nobody is happy with. But I think out of getting worn down, they all say, well, it's as close as we're going to get. And there's usually a lot of, of weeping and you know debate that goes on in these particular things from what I hear. Um, it would be interesting to hear some of the debates that go on during some of these, but uh, that usually is what it ends up being anyhow. And this has to deal with what's called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And this is where a group of theologians got together in Chicago and came up with... Um, you know, these certain articles making statements about uh, biblical inerrancy and what they believed that it was. And here's just a, a couple of these um, selected articles from here. And I'm going to try and spot read my Roman numerals and hope I get them well enough. Article 4, uh, we affirm that God who made mankind in his image has used language as a means of revelation. We deny that human language is so limited by our creatureliness that it is rendered inadequate as a vehicle for divine revelation. We further deny that the corruption of human culture and language through sin has thwarted God's work of interpretation. Forgot to mention, they have an affirmation and a denial uh, in, in each one of these things. Um, so what that's basically saying is that even though we are under the effects of sin, okay, and this has to deal with what's called the Noahic effect, um, and and this has this comes from the word um, uh, gnosis, meaning um, uh, oh, now my, my mind's going blank. Um, knowledge and. What is happening here with the Noahic effect doesn't have anything to do with with Noah, you know, per se, the guy who built the ark. Um, it, it has to deal with just as our body, because of sin, um, is breaking down, is is degrading. It doesn't function properly. We have sickness. We have, um, you know, we have different um, physical uh, problems. But this would also say that, you know what, because this had a spiritual and a mental effect on us as well. But God is still able to use our language and to use the way that we think in order to communicate with us. That is not a hindrance to God. Okay. Article 6 says, We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all of its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or some parts, but not the whole. Okay, so what this is saying here, again, if, if you, I mean, just a second ago, we're talking about Epsistema Verb and Epsistema Vox, and you're hearing that first one, you know, that we affirm that the whole of Scripture and all of its parts down to the very words of the original were given by divine inspiration, that that word, that that's Epsistema Verba, the verb, the word, think, remember, think of it like that, and that they're not denying that you can't deduce from it the voice of God, but what they are denying is that the inspiration of Scripture can be rightly affirmed of the whole without the parts. So, they would say that the verba, or the vox part, the voice of God, cannot be properly understood or interpreted 
if you only have parts of it. You need to have all of it. All of it has to be um, inspired. Every single word. And there, there is one point where later on I'm actually going to push very, very hard against that. Um, Article 7 says, We affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilizes the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he has chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the, the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. Now, Again, some of these writers use what were called amanuenses, and an amanuense was like a scribe, a secretary, who they would dictate to. If you read the book of Romans, you can see you know, very, very clearly at the end that the amanuenses, he signs off himself on there. Um, he's writing it. So the question comes in, the words that he was given, because the amanuenses had freedom, to smooth out language. Some were better than others. Um, according to findings like in the Oxyricus papyri, they would find that sometimes the amanuenses wasn't as skilled grammatically as the person who was dictating to them. And the way that they know that is because after they had them written out, you might see them like sign something, you know, I'll sign my name. Oh, P.S. You know, I'm going to stop by the store and I'm going to grab some milk, eggs and cheese on my way home or, you know, whatever. And they would write a little something and you'd be like, wow, they're, command of the Greek language is actually better than the person that wrote. It was just in fashion. It was something they did at the style of the time. And that, you know, bears in on this. So, you know, we kind of have to ask, well, was it also, if, 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 let's say the Apostle Paul said something, okay, and his amanuenses then decided to word it slightly different just to make it smooth out in the language, and Paul looked it over and said, oh, yeah, okay, that works, and then he kept going. Who is God inspiring? The amanuenses or the apostle? Or perhaps both. I mean, that's also a, a possibility. But you, you, know, you got to be real careful with a lot of this stuff. Um, Article 9, we affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, um, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude or falseness of these writers, by necessity or otherwise, introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, I'm going to try and get through a, f yeah, a few more of these here. Um, Article 11, we affirm that scripture having been given by divine inspiration is infallible so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all matters it addresses. We deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and inerrant in its and errant sorry in its assertions infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated 
We deny that biblical... In, oh, sorry, I skipped ahead. Um, Article 12 says, We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. Okay, that is very intentional in that wording. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual religious or redemptive themes, exclusive assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation and the flood. Okay. And that is something that is a huge debate within the Christian community. Now, uh, if I remember correctly, and I probably have to look it up for you, but the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy is a largely Baptist from Anabaptist roots, um, where where it comes from, uh, Southern Baptist, that sort of thing. So you are going to have some of that dogma you know, creeping in. And this, in my opinion, is unnecessary dogma. Okay. Um, when it in my opinion, when it comes to the um, age of the earth, that the Bible's silent on it. I I reject a lot of the claims, all of the claims that are made that you know the Bible in the Book of Genesis specifically is a textbook on the timeline of how old the earth is. It, I, I don't read that at all. I don't see that at all. I. Um, I find that to be outside of what um, that passage of scripture is actually trying to say. We affirm the um, propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of scripture. We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is neglected by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of metrical, I think I read that right, variant selections of material in parallel accounts or the use of free citations. Now, I know that that's a lot there. I know that that's a mouthful. Um, I would just tell you to hey, look up, go to Google, type in Chicago Statement of Biblical in- Inerrancy, and you can read through these yourself. We affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. We affirm that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that such confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences, both to the individual and to the church. And that is one point where these are people who are a lot smarter than me, and I would really like to agree with them, but that wording is a bit too strong for my liking in this in this area. And I know what you're thinking. Maybe I am an inerrant objectionist. Um, I try not to be. The way that I... I guess if you were to pigeonhole me, if you were really to push me back into a corner on this, I don't 
like a lot of times the definitions and the baggage that comes with the claim of inerrancy. I guess I am more of an infallibility type person, but that there is a particular inerrancy that does go along with it that I think gets, I don't know, stretched a little bit too far. So here are the objections to inerrancy. Since the scriptures were written by man, we should expect them to accurately reflect the characteristics in all men, which is error. To deny error in scripture is to deny humanity of scripture. Again, to error is human. Premise one, human beings err. And I keep saying error, but it's err. You know, to err is human. Human beings err. Premise two, the Bible is a human book. Conclusion, the Bible errs. Now, people, a lot of people would probably disagree with that second premise. The Bible is a human book. Well, I believe that it is, but it's more than that. But it most certainly is a human book. It did not drop out of the sky. It was not found on, you know, golden plates in, you know, northern, um, the northern part of uh, New York State that we had to use magic spectacles, you know, or seer stones to translate the neo-hieroglyphics. And that's how they got the Book of Mormon. We don't hold to that as Christians. Um, we believe that people did write it. Ultimately, I mean, if, if, if you looked at it, if, if somebody gave you something and said, here, I want you to read this, the first thing you're going to think is somebody wrote that. If they give you a book, somebody wrote this book. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to think of it as you know, a book written by man, okay? But um, the uniqueness of it, and we showed that from, uh, from Prophecy, you know, a couple uh, episodes ago, or was that, was that last episode? I think it was last episode. You know, the fact that prophecy is in there and what that means for the Bible in particular that takes it out of that realm of just a book written by man. Um, so inerrancy only applies to the original manuscripts. Since we do not have the original manuscripts, it's irrelevant to talk about inerrancy. And this is why the King James only people hold to the King James Version being the authorized version because they would say you need some type of cannon, you need some type of measuring rod, you need something to measure it to, okay? The Bible contains errors, therefore the Bible is not inerrant. And by using errors here, I think that they'd be talking about um, perhaps variants, but perhaps they'd be talking about the discrepancies that are just a little bit more than, you know, errors, but the translations that we have... Most definitely, we would say that they have errors. Even people that do hold to inerrancy and take it back to the original writings would say, and I would say, well, does your Bible have errors in it? Well, depending on how they thought about it, they might say no. I say, oh, so yours is the original what was writing. Well, no, it's not. Okay, so if it's a translation from somebody, is it possible that has errors in it since only the originals are the ones without errors? Well, yeah. Okay, so it does. All right, so if it does have errors, and um, we can't get back to the original. We can get very close. I think that, you know, by us having 110% of it, the original is in there somewhere. Um, we have all the words the, that were ever written. It's just that we have a lot of extra things in there that we have to get rid of that we don't have some inerrant manuscript to uh, look at or to take from. Um, th that then leads us to say that our Bibles, our modern translation Bibles, are not 
error-free, that it's possible that they have errors in them. So people would object to this, obviously. They, they do not want to you know, admit to any of these things. So here is some of the responses that normally you get in this type of discussion, in this conversation. While it's true that the Bible is a human work, and humans often err, it is also true that it is a divine work, and God does not err. It is not necessary to err to be human. Okay? And this goes to say, you know, um, that you know, Adam and Eve, was it possible for them to to make a mistake for them to error before the fall. I don't know. I really don't. Um, I would say yes, because they did and they fell. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily make you human. Um, being sinful doesn't make you human. Um, Christ was human. He was without sin. Did Christ ever make a math mistake growing up? Did he always get a perfect on all of his tests? I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Is it that important? If the argument was true, then this argument would also be true as well. Human beings err. Christ is a human being. Christ errs. Oh, excuse me. The fallacy of this argument lies in the premise that the err is human. Human beings must err, or human beings can err. Error is not a foregone necessity of humanity, but it's something that you, you know, you can think about, you can talk about, you can debate with your, you know, your your friends or your Bible study, and just say, hey, let's kind of talk about this. I mean, one of the questions that you know we I, I've kicked around in other areas was, um, you know, if Jesus wasn't crucified, if he wasn't you know killed on the cross, would he ever die? Because the punishment for sin is death, would he ever die? It's something that you, you know, that's that's something for you to play around with. You can go and, you know, when you're sitting in Bible study and need a topic or you just want to kind of muse over something and say, hey, here's something kind of interesting. You know, is this, is this sort of thing, you know, possible? Um, so some people look at it like this, that Jesus, and, and this is bad philosophy talk here, but this is the way that they look at it. If Christ is 100% human and he's also 100% God and he is called the word of God and scripture is called the word of God and scripture is 100% human and 100% God. Doesn't that just make sense? Doesn't that lend a little bit more credibility to this? Now, while it's true that we do not have the original manuscripts of Scripture, this does not invalidate the doctrine of inerrancy. It simply makes textual criticism all the more important. Through the science of textual criticism, we learn that the scriptures are preserved with 95% accuracy and that we have access to the originals through diligent study and research. In other words, textual criticism does not invalidate inerrancy, but inerrancy validates textual criticism. Which is a really good point. If we did not think that the actual words themselves meant anything... 
you know, why would we be trying so hard to actually get back to that original intent? Why wouldn't we just be very happy with something like a message Bible, which is a paraphrased Bible, basically a commentary, or some of the you know writings of the church fathers, you know, their their commentaries on some of the stuff. Why 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 don't we just go that direction, you know? We spend so much time getting back to the originals because we find it to be extremely important. The early church fathers found it important. Um, Irenaeus, in his uh, debates with Marcion, found it extremely important. Um, you know, he would write that. You know, I mean, he's probably being hyperbolic at the time, but you know, he's writing in like the you know second century and uh, second or third second century, and he's saying that. Uh, well, maybe it's third century to something or other. Um, I always get the, that a little bit confused. But he's saying that, you know, the Gospels that we have, there are only four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the only ones that we have. And, you know, the ones that are floating around, they're already getting errors in them. You know, but we do, but we can go back and we can look at the originals. He's sort of making the assumption there that the original ones that were written, they still existed at his time. Perhaps hyperbolic. But... If you had a lot of copies floating around, you could compare them, see what the discrepancies were between them, smooth them out, and get back to the original, which is what we do now in textual criticism. Now, when the original context and intention is understood, taking into account the science of textual criticism, all alleged errors are shown to be based upon either faulty hermeneutics, which is the art and science of biblical interpretation, or scribal errors. And we went over those scribal errors. Um, so let's look at some of, of the alleged errors, okay? And some of the alleged errors um, are, here, here's one that's in um, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 10, verse 18, okay? Verse 1 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 18. Now, when, you, when you're looking at the Old Testament, some of these Old Testament books, especially the, the historical works, um, they were written at the same time or around about the same time period, okay? Um, the book First Second Chronicles, that is written from the perspective of the temple, okay? Um, so First Second Kings, First Second Samuel, you know, it generally following the kings and and um, Samuel. So Samuel says here in 1018, but the Armenians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Armenians, or Armenians, I guess, and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. First Chronicles 19.18 says, The Armenians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Armenians 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers and put to death uh, Shopak, or Sho, Sho, yeah, Shofak, uh, the commander of the army. Different spelling of the name there. So the, the error that we would have here would be um, instead of 700 charioteers, he killed 7,000 charioteers, multiplied by 10. Instead of it being 40,000 horsemen, it was 40,000 foot soldiers and the spelling of the name. Now, this is simply an error in transcription. Okay. Basically, what it's saying is he killed a lot of people. 
he was a great warrior. That's the point that's trying to be made. The error in the transcription is you know, very easy to make when you have a language that doesn't have numbers and uses you know, letters to convey numbers, especially when you get into large numbers. But that is just an error in transcription, not an error in a um, uh, huge discrepancy where, you know, uh, well, did he kill 7,000 or 700? I don't know. Did he kill a bunch of people? Yeah, that's the point. Okay, alleged error number two is Matthew 27, verse 5, verses Acts 1, 18. Matthew 27, 5 says, So Judas threw the silver coins into the temple and left. Then he went out and hanged himself. Acts 1.18 says, Now this man Judas acquired a field with the reward of his unjust deed, and falling headfirst, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. All right, first off, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke was a Gentile, and he was a doctor. Doctors like yucky things. I've known many doctors. I've been in Bible studies with many doctors. I've had good friends that were OBGYNs. Um, general practitioners, and we would have private conversations all the time. They like talking about yucky stuff. This stays in the theme of Dr. Luke here, talking about yucky stuff, just so that you know. He's adding that in. He went around. Remember, he was investigating. He was talking to people, and somebody probably said to him, "Oh, yeah." And then he fell, and his, you know, and his it burst open. He fell hurt first. He burst open in the middle. His intestines gushed out everywhere. And you know, Luke was like, "Ooh, ooh his intestines gushed everywhere." Oh, that's that's really cool. I, ooh, I'm writing that down. I mean, that's that's how they are. Okay. So the solution to this is that this is a faulty assumption. Two writers can include different details of the same event for their own purposes. Judas could have hanged himself and then fallen. Peter was emphasizing the fulfillment of prophecy through the death of Judas. Wow, this was not a concern of Matthew. Okay, um, Matthew is using this whole, like, you know, the the silver coins thing and stuff. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. They would have understood the significance of why he was telling this part of the story of, of what happened to Judas. The third alleged error here is in uh, Matthew 26, verse 34, and Mark 14, 30. And uh, this is where in Matthew 26, 34, it says, Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Mark 14, 30 says, and Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Okay. Um, that's just, this is just a matter of one writer being a little bit more detailed than the other. The fact of the matter is that Jesus said, you know, before the rooster crows, before morning, you're going to deny me three times. All right. Whether it was, you know, the rooster crows twice, the rooster crows once, um, you know, however they're modern time before, you know, the, the, the call is made, you know, 12 o'clock and all is well, or whatever they did you know, back then. That was the point. Okay. And again, this as you're you're sitting here thinking, wow, Sam, you were really going for the infallibility argument here, not the inerrancy argument. And yeah, I am kind of leaning in that way. But these, the, but this is why this is the type of stuff that you know gets me going there. Because if that wasn't the case, why don't we just try and harmonize 
you know the story into just one thing and just kind of leave it at that. I mean, they 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 tried that before. Um, nobody nobody liked it. They didn't want that. They want they want the originals. The fourth alleged error is that the Bible claims that the moon is a light, but we know that the moon simply reflects light, but is not a light itself. Isaiah 13.10, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Okay, this is an overemphasis on scientific preciseness that does not take into account phenomenological language. Okay, speaking, that's language that speaks from the perspective of the subject. If you have a problem with this in scripture, if this is the thing that's holding you back from being a Christian, okay, if you're that type of person, then you are also the type of person that is calling up every single news weather person out there and screaming at them on a daily basis when they talk about sunrise and sunset. And you're screaming at them that the sun does not rise or set, but that the earth rotates. And you probably do it in some really snarky way to show that you're so much smarter than them, but you're just being over literal. You're not taking, you know, the way that people talk into account. I mean, that's the thing about the Bible that you have to understand. These people were just talking like people. They talk like we do, you know? If you're trying to say something to someone, you don't say it exactly perfectly, but they know what you mean. You know, I mean, I've had people talk to me where they used the, the wrong word, the complete wrong word. They used a, 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 you know, a word that sounded extremely similar to that word or didn't sound similar to that word or missaid that word. You know, I've had someone, I've heard pastors before from the pulpit, you know, in saying, um, trying to use the word fornication and saying fornification. All right. A fortification and fornication are different things. Fornification is mixing those two words together and getting, I don't know what. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't even want to even pretend to put together what that word would actually be, what it would actually look like. That would be, uh, you know, kind of strange in and of itself. But, um, you know, let me let me continue on here. One more alleged error. Uh, Proverbs twelve twenty one: The righteous do not encounter any harm, but the wicked are filled with calamity. Luke sixteen nineteen through twenty two: The unrighteous rich man is without harm, while the righteous poor man is expecting calamity. So the solution to this is that faulty understanding concerning the nature of a proverb. A proverb is a general truth that does not necessarily apply in every situation. Here is a misunderstanding of the ultimate end of both men. The poor man, Lazarus, was the one who ultimately experienced peace while the rich man experienced calamity after death. It's also like the proverb that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is older, he will not depart from it. That is a general proverb, okay? That is just saying, generally, if you train children upright, then they will live right. They will go in the way that they're supposed to go. That doesn't happen all the time. That's not 100%. You could have a family of five and like, you know, two of the kids are bad, two of the, three of the kids are good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a possibility, you know, but this is just a general proverb. That's all that proverbs are. So some facts about inerrancy. The Bible does speak in accommodating language. Okay, it says stuff like the sun went down, the sun rose, you know. The Bible does use round numbers, okay, 1,000 years, 7,000, you know, um, instead of like 6,899. The Bible does summarize the Sermon on the Mount is longer in Matthew than in Luke. 
um, consideration must be made of the genre of the individual books. Okay, if it's poetic, if it's phenomenological language um, that's used in poetry, the moon turning to blood, um, you know, that can have a different significance. Um, Apocalyptic uh, revelation, like in the book of Revelation, you know, you, you have all those different images. Um, the Bible does use free quotations, um, Old Testament and in the New Testament. So, yeah, I think this is a, a good place to stop here because I wanted to, you know, I, I want you to think about that whenever you're approaching the Bible. After all we've gone over, and you know that it's the Word of God, you know that it's trustworthy, you know that it's inspired, you know that you can look at it, and what you're reading is the Word of God. But is the translation that you have. That's what I'm stressing here. Don't think more of your translation than you ought. This is why we have a lot of translations. Read broadly. If you could learn some Koine Greek for at least word study, um, Bill Mounts has a great um, uh, basic, you know, beginners uh, Greek courses that you can take um, online. You can like order his stuff, workbooks, books, like all you know that, those sort of things. Um, it, it mounts is spelled M O U N C E, I believe. Um, it, you know, he's got real good uh, study guides. There's tons of stuff out there where if you want to get back into the original languages just for word study purposes, just so if you are kind of hung up on on a particular word, you can say, all right, well, let's go back and look at the Greek of that and see what that's conveying. See what, what the connotations are. What what is, you know, what what is what's the meaning? And how did they mean it? Okay, and that's when we'll start to get in the hermeneutics when you're gonna start doing that. But you know, just think about the difference between infallibility, unable to fail, and inerrancy. Now, the Pope is said to be infallible when it comes to faith and practice. Okay. Whenever he's speaking from the chair of Peter, ex cathedra, okay, from the chair. And I guess there actually is a chair. But this is similar to the chair of Moses. It's it's a, a position of authority. He doesn't actually have to be sitting in a chair. But when he's speaking about the faith, he is speaking without the ability to fail. Just in that case, not in anything else, not in everything that he says. Okay, the um, you know socialist slash communist pope that we have right now that came from South America with his liberation theology that is very prominent in South America, where the you know it's the church's job to you know get politically involved and and you know battle uh, social justice for uh, the downtrodden. Okay, when he's talking about that, that's not. Ex cathedra. That is not from the chair. Okay, um, he when it comes to you know faith and practice about like you know praying and um, you know sort of the, the, you know those sort of things that they would say is infallible because the problem comes when you look in your history. You got a lot of popes said a lot of different things. Some of them contradicted each other. And what exactly do you do about that? Hey, I want to thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. I want to thank you for subscribing. If you could do me a favor and go to iTunes and, you know, give me a rating or and and or leave a, um, a comment on there, um, that would be great. Uh, you can also visit me at um, The Theology Pit on Facebook. You can email me, samson at samsonstick.com. You can go to samsonstick.com to get um, all of these podcasts, all these, you know, um, ones from uh, Salvation, ones from uh, the Bible here that we're doing. Uh, 
listening. Um, if you want to uh, donate on Patreon, you can you can do that, but uh, there's not much of a reward there for you. I apologize. But thank you very much for listening, and now it's definitely time to close down the pit. Mm-hmm.